JFK, the 60th anniversary of the assassination, with Paul Fitzgerald and Liz Gould, right here, right now, on VT Radio. Let's go. With host Johnny Punish. And we're back on VT Radio with the fantastic Paul Fitzgerald and Liz Gould, all the way from Boston, uh, well, the near Boston area, Massachusetts in the United States. Today we're going to talk about JFK. It's the 60th anniversary of the assassination, which would have happened on November 22nd, 1963. Paul and Liz, welcome back to VT Radio. How are you doing today? It's great to be here. We're great. Thanks. We're great. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks for having us back. Right. Great. But before we get started, I, I just wanted to say uh, you probably see me wearing this uh, Palestinian kufiya. Um, it's in solidarity with what's happening right now. As we're speaking, there is an invasion of uh, Gaza going on with the U.S. and Israelis. Um, and they're invading uh, with over 7,000 people have already been murdered. Obviously, more coming because the invasion is hand-to-hand combat right now. And uh, over 3,500 children have been murdered. Over 100 doctors, journalists have been murdered. Um, and so I'm wearing this in protest. I'm also wearing this in protest to uh, in, in solidarity with the Israelis because the Israeli children have been murdered as well. Uh, and no one's winning this. And I stand with the children of Israel and children of Palestine. Uh, that's where I stand. And so I will keep continue to speak about that. That doesn't really concern what's going on with JFK, or does it? I mean, um, the JFK assassination is flooded with with issues, and maybe you guys can start speaking about that. Paul and Liz, go ahead. Tell me what's going on with the uh, anniversary. Well, th- th- we're coming up to the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination, and uh, we have actually been working on uh, a Fitzgerald history going back to the creation of the Fitzgerald family that goes back a thousand years. And uh, in our research, of course, you know, Paul being the Fitzgerald who was motivated to want to do that, um, into, in the research we were able to uncover, it became very obvious uh, not that long into it. In fact, we originally did the research. It's a quick story just to set up how this all happened. Um, we originally got involved with um, covering uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, 1979, discovered that the um, basically the narrative creation process of the mainstream media, which we work with, you know, CBS News and ABC and PBS and all of them. And we discovered the narrative really had nothing to do with facts. And we reached a point where we said, hey, you know, it, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to change the mainstream narrative. And so we decided to leave uh, journalism and we started writing screenplays that eventually led to a point where we weren't sure what to write. Our daughter, 10 years old, in 1991, has a dream, a message from Paul's father, who Alyssa had never met. And she's um, basically accompanied by someone wearing an unusual outfit that became uh, got everyone's attention, but we didn't know who he was. But the message to Paul at that point, coming the way it did, was very clear. He had to go look into the Fitzgerald history. It was it, That was the way he translated we end up three months later seeing the film JFK, which Oliver Stone's film had just come out. And we realized because of all the history we were looking at, there is an association between this assassination and this history somehow. There has to be. So we wrote up a paper, basically, and we got in touch with them and said, would you be interested in doing something you know, now about this history? And in 1991, he wasn't prepared then to do that. 
Um, he eventually was interested in Afghanistan, but not in the Fitzgerald legacy history. So here we are 30 years later, and there's finally interest in that exact history. And so we're, we're very excited, but we are quite surprised at how long it took to get <laughs> to this point. <laughs> took us an extra 30 years. <laughs> Right. So, 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 tell me more about what do you think the connections are right now, Paul? T tell me what what's what's actually happening behind the scenes, and, and what what have you found out? Well, you know what's going on today. <clears throat> you actually could the, the the politics of the Middle East go back a thousand years in terms of the Western involvement with it, uh, the European involvement with the with the First Crusade, ten ninety nine. Uh, the Fitzgerald family, it turned out, I, you know, I did one of these Y-DNA tests and it turns out that my, my uncle was trying to trace the family back. And I, I go back to 1025 to uh, Walter Fitzgerald, who was the first of the Geraldines, as they called the family at that point. And uh, they, had, <clears throat> they had wound up, uh, they wound up in England and they wound up in Ireland in the uh, 12th century and the 11th and 12th century. And uh, that would that began. They were working for uh, the kings of you know the the, the royal families. It, nor, in the 12th century, it was the Normans first, and then it moved to the uh, the Angevins, the French, Henry II in 1169, and they came to Ireland at, at that time period, 1169, and uh, they had been in the Crusades, and they were Knights Templar, and they were Knights Hospitaller. And uh, so at any rate, uh, 1169, they began to settle down in the, in, into Ireland and create two dynasties. Uh, one was the Kildare dynasty and the other one was the, uh, the dynasty of Desmond. And the Desmond family was the one that I was connected to and that's the family that JFK was connected to. And it turns out that my grandfather uh, worked, went to work uh, at, when he came from Ireland in 1900 and he uh, was involved in a strike and he went to meet with Honey Fitz, JFK's grandfather in Boston. And the two of them sat down and they determined that they were very closely related. And uh, and so that- Why, why did they call him Honey Fitz, by the way? Just out of curiosity. He he loved to sing Adeline. Apparently he had- Sweet Adeline. Sweet Adeline. Sweet Adeline. <laughs> so, I mean, and he was known as a marvelously friendly and, and, and very social person. Um, you know, he had quite the reputation um, for taking on a lot of important issues for people. You know, he's beloved, I think that, and especially he was beloved by JFK. He was kind of the old kind of Boston politician where if you had a problem with your family, you could come to yeah. him and he could help you solve it. He'd find the solution for you. Right. Gotcha. Right. Like a tribal well, elder. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> well, continue, Paul. I'm sorry. So at that rate, uh, what happened was is that over the years, uh, an, an antagonism kind of built between the Fitzgerald family and the crown in London. Uh, and, you know, when, when, King, when Henry VIII, King Henry VIII, came to power, he was the king in England. He was not the king in Ireland. He was considered to be a prince in Ireland. And the Fitzgerald family and a number of other families operated basically as kings of, kings of their provinces. And so this was a real problem for the, um, you know, for the Catholic Fitzgeralds. And then Henry VIII went and declared himself, you know, he, the head of his own church. So uh, that became that added to the complexity of what was going on with the the uh, Reformation and the Counter Reformation. And and just to make a point about when JFK was running for president, the issue of him being a Catholic was a red hot issue right. in Texas. It may not have been an issue in other parts of the country, but the place where he was assassinated, it was very serious. So mm -hmm. the idea of of this 
this infighting that really is at the heart of the, you know, of the, a lot of the motivational issues that we're dealing with in terms of what led to the assassination. Right. At back. that time, there had never been a U.S. president who was Catholic. Is that correct? Right. He was That's the right. first one. Yes, he was. But and the- it was, it was absolutely um, talked about, uh, concern. He would be ruled by the Pope and such. But you, you see, the fact, the fact is, is that the Earls of Desmond, the 13th and 14th Earls of Desmond, actually were in negotiations with the Pope at that time in the 16th century to make Southwestern Ireland an independent entity. They really did want to break away from England in terms of the rule of the country. So that was, uh, they were considered to be traitors as a result of that. And so that the, the story of the Fitzgerald family goes back a thousand years, but the, you know, it starts to get much more in terms of the, the, the kind of aggravation when you get into the whole nature of the, uh, the uh, the intelligence service that was created during Queen Elizabeth in the 1560s and 1570s is the time when you get a real sense of of uh, struggle between the Fitzgeralds in Ireland and London, and it goes back and forth and back and forth, and they finally there's a war that happens in which the last Earl of Desmond is killed and and his head is, and is decapitated and his head is sent to Queen Elizabeth the first. So I mean, you don't hear about these things about the you know when you watch these lovely movies that are made you know. Yeah, I didn't uh, see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you won't see that in right. a movie, not from right. Hollywood anyway. Well, it's important, I think, though, to really keep in mind that it, it, there was definitely competition, and that in and of itself may not be that surprising that there would be fiefdoms growing up who sure. were going to you know compete with whoever ruled at that time. But there was something else going on with the Fitzgeralds. It was actually even more problematic for London. They were actually becoming what became known as more Irish than the Irish. They were embracing the Gaelic ways. They were embracing the laws. And um, in fact, uh, Gerald Fitzgerald, who was um, the, he was, cons- he's considered to be the, um, the, the Fitzgerald that inspired the mythological Geroidi Arla, who is still talked about today as the spirit that's going to come back and save the Irish people. Um, and so, but this idea that there had been a, a more than a competition, that there actually was a split in the Fitzgeralds that, that actually became um, a threat of a different kind for London. Because when royals don't like to see their own, they consider that to be the ultimate betrayal. When you were once a royal and you leave it, you literally completely sever from it. It's almost like joining a secret society. They consider you theirs and they don't like it. And it's almost like, well, you know, secrets and, you know, you're not going to, you know, you're not with us anymore. That's dangerous. So part of the motivational issues we're dealing with came out of that. And the death of the last Earl of Desmond in 1583, it was claimed that the creation, the inauguration, though, of the British Empire was in 1583. And that connection implies that the beheading of Gerald really uh, qualified for a sacred sacrifice. You, you so might actually even say that it, it's very similar. What was going on in the 1570s and the 1580s is very similar to what's going on right now in terms of the world. Okay, The United States represents the British Empire. In fact, it was the it was the receiver of the British Empire in 1945 yeah. at the end of World War II and proceeded to pick up the colonies and proceeded to you know, rule the seas and all the other things that the West has been standing for. 
and and versus this kind of multipolar world where you basically you know uh, your country you have individual sovereignty in your country and you join a collective body something like the UN in theory anyway uh, that would basically you you would be represented there and you would in terms of global issues you would you would become a a, a part of that but your your own culture your own uh, uh, families would be respected in that process, as opposed to being blended into this kind of uh, ersatz world order in which you follow certain rules high, handed down by a, an executive committee uh, formed of uh, large corporations. Uh, that's the that's the empire, okay? And so that's what was going on. It was going on back in the 1580s. The Fitzgeralds and a, a number of other uh, barons that had been Anglo-Norman barons. Uh, that had come in, in 1169, uh, basically were interested in setting up their own independent duchies, as it were, their own independent colonies with their own people and their own rules and their own laws and their own language. And that's what the Fitzgeralds were guilty of. Uh, they had basically taken on the language. They, they did the same thing in Sicily. Wherever the Normans went, they became part of the local culture. And so, you know, and, and there were there were Norman establishments in North Africa, in Sicily, in Southern Italy, and in Ireland, and in Europe, in France. I mean, it, it all was, you know, very much the kind of idea that we're actually confronting right now and facing in terms of the world, the possibilities for the future. With each identity, how do, how do you see the correlation with the world right now? Can you explain that a little bit more for me, so I, our readers and VT listeners can understand that a little bit more? Well, there's a real crisis. I mean, we have this this thing with with the World Economic Forum, which is basically handing down edicts, dictating the way we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, you know, we've, we've moved from one crisis to the next, to the next, to the next. Our society is being reshaped. It's being reformed. Uh, we're being told that we can't use oil. We can't drive our cars. We can't eat our homes. It's much worse in Europe, I think, than it is here. Uh, laws are being passed about how you're supposed to talk, who, how you're supposed to refer to other people, uh, all these different things. And it's it's like, where did this come from? Well, it's been in the pipeline for really for over 100 years at this point in the West. A lot of the stuff that Aldous Huxley wrote uh, about the when the population would get to a certain size in the in the in the world, uh, that it would have to be certain other kinds of regimes that wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't be able to have democracy. You wouldn't be able to have freedom because it would be too expensive to live. Well, there's also another, I think, component here. And again, it does harken back to what was going on in the 1560s and 70s and with the rise of Queen Elizabeth. And of course, the creation of the Church of England and that implication as a, a direct threat to obviously the power of Rome um, and the world shifting because of that. What Elizabeth did that I think is really may be a key to what we are seeing today with the World Economic Forum as the underlying power vortexes that supersede uh, governments. Okay, And not only that, but right now, a lot of our governments have been infiltrated by World Economic Forum graduates. So we've got this whole you know, process going on around us. Well, you might consider that the origin of that process was really inaugurated by Queen Elizabeth when she created the British East India Company as her private partner in empire building. And uh, they became the model. And right now we are living 
you know, and that also really established the first, like the modern form of fascism, because a corporate uh, alliance with the state is fascism, basically. And especially when the, the private nature of a corporation, we now can see, actually has un, um, you know, totally out of control effect on the representation process in democracies, especially. And we know that, you know, the, the whole problem with who pays for obviously Congress and Senate really controls Congress and Senate. And so, for example, BlackRock with uh, Larry Fink, I mean, they're what their GDP is $3 trillion or something bigger than Texas, you know, but you can see that was really a direct result of of the inauguration of the British East India Company and the, the, the use of the private aspect as her partner, because remember when she became not only queen, but head of the church, she didn't have the problem that other, that the Catholic rulers had. They had to deal with the separate entity called Rome. She didn't have to do that. And she had a private partner who was able to front for her in all kinds of ways that they didn't want the public obviously to so know about. So they sanctified, in Britain, they sanctified this kind of uh, private uh, corporate idea yeah. behind it, public-private idea. And th- and that's what has been ruling uh, the Western world for the last 400 years. So that's-, you know, I, that's- I, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, uh, when I'm listening to you talk, I'm reminded, and we're old enough to remember this, uh, there was a movie in 1975 called Rollerball. Yes. Mm-hmm. Remember that, Rollerball? Yes, and I, I remember Jonathan, Jonathan. And then I, I just recall that it was about the corporate- Corporate takeover of society, wasn't it? Was was am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. it was. There's another. Is that movie. what we're talking about here, where the corporations are completely taking over? Yeah, our brains. Oh, uh, right. Absolutely. But the, the, I think what I'm trying to frame here for 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 your audience, though, is where this original idea really took off. It wasn't that there weren't private corporations before the 1600s. It was this. It was the partnership, and that's the basis of fascism. That's the the very and so this is where we and we're living in the final stage of the British Empire's creation of that relationship. There was one very high level guy, George Ball. I don't know if you're ever yeah. run into yeah. his name or not. So, so he Secretary was a, of State, wasn't he? Yes, he was Under Secretary of State, and he was did a number. He performed a number of functions back in the 1960s and 50s in terms of government. But he actually he was very one one of these people, high level people, high level family, and he was involved in you know, ad- advocating for a, a, a new world order, as it were, okay? And he actually came out and went on the record as saying that we needed a new world order that was based on the East India Company, that we needed to, con- that they needed to control the world based on this kind of model of the East India Company. And of course, the American Revolution was a revolution against the East India Company. <laughs> I mean, it was the tax on the tea. We did it right here in Boston. I mean, yes. they threw the tea into the harbor. That tea came from the East India Company. And there was a there was a relationship with the British government whereby the, the British government reinforced the power of the East India Company and the India East India Company shoveled money into the government of England. So they really, you know, you go back to that. And that was before, you know, the United States was even a country. So these issues- So, so you and, threw them out- and he's inviting them back in. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> as the model, as the model for you know for what the future would be, and we would all live under 
as subjects of the East India Company. Well, there are those who claim that the United States actually really is a corporation, that it always has been. You know, the flag, we have a, you know, where yeah. George Washington, when he came to Boston to help out the locals, fight out, get the, drive the British out, out of the city of Boston, which was an island pretty much at the time. There was a point in Somerville overlooking the city, the heights, and George Washington flew his flag there. And the flag that he flew, interestingly enough, was the East India Company flag. It was not this, it was the stripes, the, the stripes without the stars, mm -hmm. okay? And so it, once again, we've got these, you know, the, there's a lot of stuff in a, an American background that mm -hmm. uh, I can send you a copy of the picture of it. It's very mm -hmm. interesting, you know? We have the, they built a little, a little castle up there and you could go up and visit it, you know? And they fly that flag. Well, I also think the idea of giving corporations rights is another indication. I believe that the original idea of corporate rights was was happened in like 1888, something yeah, like did, that. Yeah. So we're looking at an, a definite attempt. The rights of the individual. The right yeah. to give a corporate a corporation the rights of an individual and can conf conflict everything together and confuse people about what that really means and where where that where that really leads and then and again I make the point that leads that is a result I would put it to you this way that is a result of a pre-existing fascist relationship that the private corporation already had with clearly with the state and especially you know since Queen Elizabeth's relationship with the British East India Company was the model for it Incredible. So fast forward now, uh, you're going to be speaking, uh, is it in a couple of weeks? I think November 17th yeah, at a conference for JFK. Is that right? Right. Yes, it is. There is, it's, it's the JFK. Um, I think I have the name of it here. Um, well, anyway, it's the da it's a Dallas convention. They've had it every year now. I, I don't know for how many, but for many, many years. And, um, you know, we can certainly, you know, send you the, inf it, it was actually part of the, the last article we posted with you, that information. Yeah, absolutely. Really yeah. all, all and, and you're going to be speaking at this conference. And, and, and what exactly uh, are they asking you to talk about exactly? Well, we're going to what we're what we're doing is we the, the, the basic history that we unearthed, uh, looking at some of the things we've been talking about now, which show this relationship that the Fitzgeralds had going back to well the, the Norman invasion of Ireland would be the you know the, the the flashpoint where they ended up in Ireland and then all of this began to unfold okay and eventually the the Fitzgeralds rising to the point where they became a threat to London and its control of Ireland and if you realize that Ireland became after the uh, end of the Desmond Wars which ended the Fitzgerald reign in Ireland in 1583 what you had was um, the, Ireland becoming effectively the first colony of the British Empire. Okay, and so that that's a foundational idea. So what we have is a lot of historical evidence to align the the, the assassination of J of JFK was actually a ritual sacrifice, and that is what is, yeah. It was ritual. And that, we believe, it matches other ritual sacrifices, which... Um, it matches the ritual sacrifice of Thomas Beckett. Perfectly, yeah. In, in 1170, to a T. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely uncanny how similar it is. Yeah. And someone actually wrote a book about it back in 1947 called The Arrow and the Sword. And he was uh, someone who was involved with the Church of England in London. And he got, he got the canon of St. Paul's Cathedral 
to actually comment and review the book for him. And, you know, the fact is, is that it's a very credible, it was a very credible approach to the issue, okay? There are all kinds of things that were, that were suppressed about just as they were about JFK. Right, exactly. It was a concerted effort to suppress the facts of the case regarding the execution of uh, Thomas Beckett in 1170 in the cathedral. And it was a, you, if you look back in it, <clears throat> you have these various issues about, you know, you had the Saxon tradition of, of the slain king and sacrificing the king as a, as a nature ritual in order to re restore the kingdom for another seven years. You've got all kinds of astrological things that are connected to it. And all of these things were in the back. They were all the traditions that existed in, in 12th century uh, England and Britain and Europe at the time. So you have all of these, these things. And yet the Knights Templar, the creation of the Knights Templar also happened to be at this particular time. And of course, the head of the CIA, William Donovan, the man who was the, the founding father of the CIA, actually came out and referred to his own agents as Knights Templar, that they had a secret, that they had a mission, okay, and that JFK was going to crush the Knights Templar. He, that's what he said. Now, the Pope had actually... The CIA, the C, was going to crush, he was going to splinter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the four winds. He said that. Now, that's exactly what the Pope did in uh, 1314. He did that to, to, the, the, Knights to the Knights Templar. <laughs> so the, you have this whole thing in masonry, which is this, um, the, the degree of revenge and retribution. And it's done, it's considered, you know, what they do is they kill, they sacrifice the king and they sacrifice the traitor. And so that's what he gets to be. He got to be the, he got the, he got assigned the role of the traitor. He was going to destroy the Knights Templar once again. He's a Roman Catholic. He's president. He drives through in the middle of a, a, a have you ever been to Dallas and in, in the Dealey Plaza? Dealey Plaza is a Masonic shrine. The whole plaza. The whole plaza is a, a Masonic shrine. And the whole idea is, is that, you know, as soon as you leave Dealey Plaza, you turn to the north. And the north is where Thomas Beckett died in his in in the cathedral, and that was one of the things that was suppressed in the 12th century when they talked about the nature of it, because they knew that anybody in the 12th century would know the certain signs, the number of knights that killed him, the three knights, the four knights come into the church, but he he dies with three blows. JFK is killed with three blows. So uh, you have all of these similarities in terms of the the ritual it is, and it's. And it's it's handed down from generation to generation, and uh, and evidenced in Dallas on November 22nd, which is the day that the Pope disbanded the Knights Templar. November 22nd. It was November 22nd, so it fits right into this uh, this 30th degree of masonry of of uh, revenge and revenge and retribution. And I want to ask you a question about the aftermath of the assassination uh, in the last uh, 60 years now. Where are we at? Uh, did did the JFK forces win? Did the the East India forces win? How do you see the world happening right now as it moves forward? What actually happened in the aftermath? Well, you know, we we really have a goal with this presentation. You know, we're not just trying to deliver a new angle on who might have killed him and why. We are really trying to present an underlying historical process that we see the evidence of, but we don't always understand. And these people actually, uh, you know, take this relationship very seriously. And the, the and what we're trying to do is educate people to the reality of the way they see themselves. It may right. not be, it may not be moral. 
It may not even be legal. It may not be logical. It may not be logical, but they are invested in this process. They are invested in their belief in it. And they, of course, have enough power to maintain a lot of protection for what they do. And this is all part of, so we're trying to give people another way to understand the motivation and how much they believe in it is part of the reason they will commit horrific crimes to fulfill these goals. And they believe they have a right to do it. So there's a level at which you've got to get into their mindset in order to really begin to understand how we can unravel this monster in them. Okay. And so one of our goals with JFK, though, was to really bring not just the tragedy of his assassination in this new angle uh, into the picture, which is which, of course, you know, takes it back a thousand years uh, to the origin of the Fitzgerald family. But we're really trying to help people understand the prophetic nature of what we are living through. And there are prophecies about especially this was believed in the 12th century. Uh, and we're dealing with this in, in our presentation that the the at the end of time, as it were, there will be a fulfillment of this sacrifice. Now, the original sacrifice would have been made by the last Earl of Desmond. He was the one that we just explained. Uh, Queen Elizabeth sat with his head all morning, the inauguration of the obviously of the British Empire. Well, JFK also fulfilled a sacrificial role. But the difference between what happened to the last Earl of Desmond and what happened to JFK is this is now what we believe is the end of time. And this is when the prophecy of the resurrection is supposed to happen. And that's what we're trying to bring into this. How do we resurrect what JFK was trying to do for us? Not just focus on the tragedy that we lost him and we lost something very real. And we still feel that loss. Well, how do we, we can bring it back if we realize that that is possible, it will become possible. In your perspective, please educate our VT listeners around the world. What actually did JFK bring to the world? Give us the, uh, the points on that. I believe that he was, he was really doing what the Fitzgeralds became known for in Ireland. He was actually, he connected to the ground where the people live. He was a people person, and that is very much what happened to the Fitzgeralds. They came to Ireland basically working for empire, and they eventually completely committed themselves to the land of Ireland and the people of Ireland and died for them. And that's what JFK represented. He represented that, and people felt it. And his desire to bring as much as he could uh, the beginning of the potential of world peace and the beginning of the potential of moving away from war. And we can see where it's gone now since his death. You know, we're, we're at a level where we have to have a new thought about what we're dealing here with. So that's what I would say to you. It's knowing that that's why he's still talked about. That's why there is still such a, um, for many people, when we put out our articles on this and on, on JFK and on, on, on our coming presentation, we've had comments from people where they say, I was seven years old and I still remember and I can't believe that, you know, they've won, they've won, you know, things like that. And we're trying to say, no, 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 it's not like that. 
It's not like that. That's not the best way to move forward. We have to think about it very differently. So that's what we're, you know, seeing in JFK is to really to try to think about his sacrifice. No, no differently than what happened to the last Earl of Desmond. Okay. And the fact is, is that, and this is kind of interesting uh, as, as an anecdote. Uh, the fact is, my grandfather came to this country in 1900. He left the farm, <clears throat> the family farm, in a little village called Abbeyfield, which is in the southwestern part of the country, south of Limerick. And uh, it turns out that the last Earl of Desmond had a castle in Abbeyfield. And he, the last thing he did at that was to write Queen Elizabeth the first a letter from that castle asking her that it was time to create peace between between London and uh, and Desmond, the the colony, the area of Desmond, and that that he was the Earl of. And of course, it didn't work out. Her army was already in motion at that point to destroy to destroy them, and they they denuded the place. I mean, they destroyed it. They they leveled it to the ground, comparable to what's going on in Gaza right now. So this is what they did. And the fact is, is that the Fitzgeralds had to go underground. That branch of the family went underground. And so, uh, you know, the, and a lot of them came over here. It was time, you know, at, at that point in time, 1583, 1600, you've, the, uh, the migration just started. And that's where the Fitzgeralds came and reestablished themselves here. And so he was the he was rising. He was he was the Earl of Desmond kind of rising from the ground. Yeah. At that time, you know, and that's what JFK represented. And his grandfather, Honey Fitz, knew that Honey Fitz came from the same area uh, that he was uh, the same low, Lake Gur, Low Gur is what it's called. And, uh, you know, connected to my family, uh, we actually ran. We went to see the visit the Knight of Glynn at one point who had a castle in Ireland, 1997. And he saw the genealogy that my my uh, my uncle had put together in which they farmed land for the same landlord. And he went, oh, my God, a land he uh, Viscount Gillimore used to uh, he would only hire one family. And you're the same. He 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 uh, JFK's family farmed land for Viscount Gillimore and your family farmed land. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. He said that's that was like they were his personal people who, who did the work for his farm. So it, it was like uh, we kept bumping into these things all over the place in terms of uh, my personal connection to it. So between the castle, which is a ruin now, but the fact is, is that it was a viable castle, and uh, and he was a prince of uh, you know of of Ireland at that particular time. So you know it's it's just interesting. It's fun to trace it back, but you can see that there really are some real blood uh, things happening right now in the world that need to be understood by people because you know what we what we grew up in Johnny well, the the world we grow up in is not here any longer we've got to start reconnecting some limbs and some you know some things that have been cut off from our past and start reinvigorating ourselves as you know as a as a living entity in a, in a living society i like to say that we are in the end of a revenge and retribution cycle that is literally, con it's confronting all of us. And we all know we have to give it up. I mean, anybody who isn't caught up completely in it knows there's only one choice, there's only one way. And that is the hardest thing because the, 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 so many people have waited so long to, to, you know, to want to feel that there has been some kind of acknowledgement of their suffering, of their pain. And you know, at some point, you've got to pick yourself up and say, I got to do it.
no matter what. I'm the one who has to do it. But you've got to give up the revenge. You've got to give up the retribution. There is That's the only way that this is going to move forward. Um, and we can see what's going on right now. You know, obviously in the Gaza is, you know, as Paul said, that's exactly what happened to the Desmonds in, in Ireland. They were completely annihilated. And you see it, uh, the, the revenge, which you're speaking of is the Israelis uh, uh, revenging October 7th and going into Gaza. Is that what you're referring to? Well, I'm, I'm talking about the cycle. I think what happens is that it's both sides. It's always both sides. You can never, ever, ever. That, that is the key to understanding. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much more right one side is over the other it's both sides actually have to give it up because that key, it keeps the game going and i think in many ways personally my own understanding is that i i think the gazans really are the people stuck as you mentioned about the the gazan children and the and the israeli children the mm-hmm. victims of this the people and i believe that that's the key and that when, but when you have someone who moves into revenge and retribution, it, it, it has to be taken very seriously. It is like it's like a um, I, I don't want to use a bad word to describe it, but it's kind of like a disease. Once it takes over people, it gets into their cells, and the justification for doing any, as I said about uh, in terms of the knighthoods. The justification for the assassination of JFK was clearly built. We got a communication from someone who labeled himself a heretic in 2016 when we had put out an article about giving up revenge and retribution of the, you know, with the JFK story that pretty much we're talking about. And he wrote us back and said, there is no way that we could let him live. We had to take him out. We couldn't have a Catholic. And he went on and on giving the, the United whole States history. was founded as a refuge right. for the Knights Templar right. fleeing the this is int- papal yeah. authority and the, the, the tyranny of the Catholic tradition. Right. Every crime that yeah. that the Rome did to anybody yeah. that was absolutely the, Masa- the Masons and the creation of this country, he was claiming had this right. So that's what you have to face, that when they get that way, they're, you know, they, they can't. It, you can't talk them out of it. it. There's no, as 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 we like to say, it's a it's it's a form almost of, you know, Insan- of insanity. Insanity. You and you marry it. You absolutely. You can't marry yell it. at crazy yeah. people not to be crazy. You know. <laughs> right. Uh, before I let you guys go today, uh, I'm going to ask you about how people can reach you and, and, and get more information from you. But before I, I do that, I've been asking all the VT supporters, uh, VT writers around the world, to comment on my idea of a Middle East union. And I'm going to ask you that right now. My idea, a solution for the world, because I've been to the EU. Uh, I personally like it. Uh, I was there pre-EU. And those are the days when we had borders and we had uh, passports and different monies and francs and lira and this and that. It was hard to travel. It was hard to get along. And I, My personal feeling of it is I actually prefer the fact that each one of them can travel easily uh, within the other countries and get jobs and live wherever they want. And I think in the Middle East, we've seen 100 years of of the Brits, French, and now the United States carve up the Middle East as a Western colonial situation uh, for oil and for other reasons. Uh, But it hasn't worked. It's a failure. I mean, it's 350, 400 million people living under failure, except for a few rulers in fancy robes that cost $50,000 and banksters. 
So my idea is how, how about a Middle East union? One passport, one citizenship, one money, the Middle Eastern dollar. And 584 million people can be in this union as a trading block that mm-hmm. counterbalances the EU and uh, the United States, etc. So, uh, for example, a, an Israeli right now can go work in Iraq. Now, of course, protected by the freedoms of worship, protected by the freedoms of the right to live, the Bill of Rights, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, all the rights of being a human being. Uh, no violence allowed, right? You commit violence, you go to jail no matter who you are. So you can go work in Iraq and maybe in Iraq can go, can go work in Tel Aviv and maybe you can travel around and everybody can go to Sharm el-Sheikh for a vacation. As mm-hmm. opposed, And Palestinians don't, don't have to live in a prison camp. Um, how about that? That's a good idea, isn't it? So that's my idea. It's a big thing. I, I get pushback from people. And I get people saying that's a great idea. What do you What do you think on this on the surface? What's What's your opinion about this, Liz? Go ahead. I think that uh, I think conceptually, I think it's an excellent idea. I do think though that we've also seen some downside of the European Union in terms of the arbitrary control that they have sometimes over, um, you know, over the, the the you know that's the I think we're dealing with that with the federal government here too where when you get these large overarching structures, so that means that you have to really, when you think about how to create a large overarching structure that then becomes its own power, like the federal government here versus the state government, okay? And then you have conflicts within that. And I think, again, I think we've seen plus sides absolutely, but we see downsides. So I think in your thinking, you have to actually really make sure how you know how to make sure those kind of negative aspects, and I think that way, I think you'll be able to convince a lot more people. You know, okay. to, and Paul, to what do you think? Uh, well, you know, the EU is, is basically an economic union. It, it's not really a political union, but and people don't mean. realize that. I think to the degree in which it's basically making the economies of these countries, you know, function, making this block function as an economy without. There's really the politics, and you can see that now, and I think that's a big problem for the EU in terms of its design. Uh, The fact is is that I know we have politics, you know, uh, crazy politics in the United States at this point that prevents a lot of good things from happening. And uh, But the fact is is that at this point in time, I think the kind of roadblocks that we have and the kind of logjams we have in this country, considering what's going on in the world right now, it's better that nothing happened then something bad happened. And I, th- I think there's a lot of things that are happening in the EU that are just not really good. You know, we still do have a lot more independence as individuals and freedoms <laughs> in this country, at least on the on the books anyway. Uh, whether in practice, we, you know, that remains to be seen, how they will last, whether they'll endure or not. So this is just it. If it's, if it's constructed correctly, and the United Nations started out as the League of Nations, that didn't work. And then the United Nations came up and there's all kinds of problems with the United Nations right now, which it's it really isn't functioning the way it ought to be functioning in terms of helping the the member states to do what needs to be done in order to make the lives of their people better. So, I mean, that's that's my primary concern. Does it work for the people? And that's the I think the litmus test you have to judge it by. That is the challenge, I think. 
So, so for 500 years in Europe, uh, we had Napoleon Wars, we had all kinds of wars, the French yep. killing the Germans, the Germans killing the French, and it kept on going on and on and on. And I mean, look at what happened in World War One, World War Two. So, yes, I, I agree with you on, on the macro scale. All these challenges are, are big and very important to deal with. But the previous didn't work either. You know, it, it was horrible for average people. And, and what my argument is, is that this is horrible for Palestinians. This is horrible for Israelis. Israelis want to be safe. They're not safe. But no. by attacking Gaza today, right now they're in a ground invasion. They're not going to be safer. All they're right. doing is creating 300, 400 million terrorists, so to speak. If that's exactly. the label you want to use, exactly. resistance fighters or whatever. I mean, you're not making the world better by doing this. And if we had a, a union, then maybe we, an economic union, we, we generally don't fight people that we do business with. In other words, when we have trade, <laughs> yeah. good trade, it, it, you're tending to not attack your trading partner. Right. Right. This it's, is true. It's true. But I, uh, this is the point, though. Okay, I think Paul's point about it started out as an e only about economics, but it's not only about economics, and that is the problem. And not only that, but it get, is getting into the way people have to live. So you know, you have a lot of countries in Europe now that are being pressured to have to accept certain lifestyles and certain things that may not be what that particular country wants to embrace in that way. So. There are, I think that that to me. So states' rights, so to speak, states' yeah, rights. Yeah, you've got to have yeah. some, and and I think that's part. It of It was what, never completely settled in the United States. Right, exactly, and so that is the key, and and it's I think it's a it's a a very important key to understanding how to create that larger structure that helps everything move easily around and engage, as you said, in just regular everyday business needs. Okay. And yet somehow, um, because of that, making life better for everybody, okay, lessening the tension all around, okay, we know that. But there are other aspects that do seem to pop up, and I think they have to be thought through. I guess that's what I would say to you, Johnny. Yeah. You, well, until, until we could stop the massacre of, of the Palestinian ethnic cleansing, until oh. we can stop the Yemenis uh, getting smashed by the Saudis, until we can stop the Saudi rulers from exporting their oil money into the United States and the hell of their people and enslaving Pakistanis and their culture, I, I don't have a better idea. I mean, I, oh. I need a better one. Like, I don't have one. Like, no, give me not, a better I, one. What I'm saying is I think that that the, the, the uh, part of the presentation has to include how we're going to avoid these pitfalls from happening because I think many people have become hesitant about these large structures. Look what happened to the United Nations right now, heavily influenced by the World Economic Forum or the World Health Organization, especially. You have a lot of private philanthropy money coming in from people like Bill Gates and, and such, uh, who have too much influence on these large organizations. So I think that's part of what we have to deal with. And I agree. There is no question that the move still could be better than what's happening now, but I still think a lot more people would sign on if they saw so, those. So, so more protections for states' rights, maybe the most protections for states' rights that's ever been in history, maybe something like that? Something Perhaps. has to something be, like yeah. That. Take the U.S. model and make it 10 times better. Yeah. That sounds, hey, why not? That sounds, the basic, the it's basic, a good place to start anyway. Right. Take the and the fact is, of course, it didn't work for everybody all the time, but then nothing nothing that you create is going to do that. 
no but kidding. the fact is, is that yeah. it was for, look at, you know, our relatives wound up here, our ancestors wound up here, your ancestors wound up here. Yeah. A lot of people came here and they lived a decent life and yes. they were able to take care of themselves and they were able to provide in a, in a livable society uh, that a lot of Europeans couldn't live in. You know, the right. fact is, is that they couldn't get along with each other. The fact is, is that we had a superstructure here that did function for a long time and it functioned very well for a lot of people. And so, um, and we're even, regardless of, you know, uh, of differences, we could still get along with each other, at least to some degree, and, and live our lives and our children, you know, build a better lives for our, for our children. That's not the case any longer. The United States does not represent that kind of future. Right. But they still, it does appear, though, when you do look at some of the problems happening in Europe about people's ability to, you know, have freedom of speech, you know, that um, some of the structures that we have in this country do seem to be stronger than the European structures when it comes to free speech. On that so note, that, uh, I'm going to ask you uh, to tell us, our VT listeners and readers around the world, if they want to get more involved with what you're doing, how to reach you, how to find what you're doing, and to get more information about what you discussed today, because a lot of people are super interested in subject matter. So go right. ahead, uh, Liz, tell us about that. Right. Well, we have a website called valediction.net. Okay, and all the work we do that we're talking about now is on it. There are a number uh, up at the top heading. There's a number of, of, of labels, and one of them says World Peace. If you clicked on that, you went in there, you would see a whole bunch of PDF files that give you information about the various projects that we're working on towards building world peace, towards trying to resurrect JFK's world peace plan from his American University speech, towards trying to bring in the economic rights movement, which we have now added to our belief, is that before we can have world peace, we have to have economic justice. And once we have economic justice, which is basically an economy of peace, that now we have come to understand is truly the only way that we're going to actually be able to have world peace. And there are some very practical things that can be done that are not revolutionary, just practical things that can be done to adjust the economy that we have that can make life for everyone better and right. make our make our economy function a lot better. Right. It's an earth rights movement that we're a part of and a lot of information on the, in, on, on our website at the World Peace. Um, These are ideas and, and, that were... Is the information for your travel to Dallas on that too? Is it November 17th, right? Yes, it is. And well, we can be, I mean, we you can contact us on the website we have a, um, a contact form if you want to get in touch with us there. And we also have articles that we've written. As you know, we've got a lot of information in a recent article that we um, posted with you. Um, it has a lot of this information. Um, right. Includes the locate, you know, the um, information about the the Dallas. We'll put a link to that on on the uh, right. on the post as well. Uh, yeah. Paul and Liz, I want to thank you for being on VT Radio. The VT listeners out there, don't forget to buy your VT cup, please. Also, uh, please become a member of VT. We're not MSN. If you like open, uncensored content that's just unfiltered, please support us on any article on our site at vtforeignpolicy.com. On the right side, you'll see a little become a member like graphic thing. Click on that. Join for $8 a month and help us out because – uh, this is how we pay for the services like Riverside.fm that we're on right now, which is our podcast app. Uh, it does cost money. The Internet's not free. So we'd appreciate that. On that note, um, 
I wish you both a fabulous day, world peace to everybody, and uh, a small little prayer for the, the children of Gaza and Israel yeah. that smarter people and adults in the room uh, put down their swords and, and, and actually start uh, building bridges instead of uh, walls. Exactly. We're with you. If you enjoyed this presentation, hit the like button now. Also, share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. VT approves this message.